If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to open in the Word of God to the book of Mark. As I mentioned at the outset of the service, the two services are going to be back-to-back today. So Lord willing, in the second service, following the meal, our intern is going to begin a series on the doctrines of grace, starting with why they matter, why we need to be familiar with these, and why they need to be upheld. But this morning, at this time, we are in our second sermon as we are looking through Mark's account of the gospel, of the good news. And if you weren't here last time, last time that we were in Mark, we met a person named John who is in the wilderness southeast of Jerusalem. John is the cousin of Jesus, according to human nature. And John is out in the wilderness calling Israel to repentance. This was a fulfillment of prophecies that we saw in Isaiah and Malachi. And most of those, in all probability, who were going out to John, answering this call to repentance, in light of those Old Testament prophecies, were expecting to see God come in the glory of final judgment. Instead, at verse 7, what we encounter is something very different than that. Jesus steps out of the crowd. And John identifies that this is indeed the person I was talking about, but it's not at all what people are expecting. This person who is unknown seems to all appearances like anybody else. And that brings us to where we are this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 13, but for context, we'll start at verse 7 with John's announcement. Let's give attention to the word. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals And the angels were ministering to him. Let's ask the Lord to bless our hearing and responding. Father in heaven, we come before you to receive from your word, by your spirit, that good thing. We ask that you would please guard us from error. Give us the attentiveness that is appropriate to the word. We ask that you would work in such a way that we would be full of admiration and worship towards Christ, that you would renew us in our dependence upon him and our confidence in him. Heavenly Father, do these things for you are worthy and we are needy, and you are faithful through Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Jesus' baptism by John and the 40-day period of testing in the wilderness are usually handled as separate sermons, and there's nothing wrong with that. But this morning, we are going to focus on how the two are related. 
how the two are related. And you get a hint of this relationship in verse 12, where you see after the baptism, quote, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This gives you a sense of providential urgency, that nothing was to come between this, that one needed to follow upon the other. God has a purpose in taking Jesus straight from the baptism into the wilderness testing. Together, these are a declaration and a demonstration of Jesus' willingness and ability to be the champion of Israel. Basically, his willingness to stand in and assume the responsibilities of God's covenant with his people and to fulfill them. And we're going to see what that means. But I'll give you some sense of what this is like. When I was about 15, maybe 16 years old, I was invited to an event. It was held outside of Oceanside, California on Camp Pendleton, which is a marine base. And it was called a demonstration night. People from the public were allowed to come, and they had all of us sit on bleachers. And out in a field, there were a number of vehicles, some fairly large ones like a train car and a tank. And this was held right around sunset. There was a declaration that came over the loudspeaker. Tonight, you are going to see a demonstration of the ordinance that we use to destroy large vehicles, including tanks. And so there's this declaration This is what we have the ability to do. And then the sun sets and we wait for about half an hour until it's fully dark. And then it's like the lights turn on. Even with ear protection, it was deafening and the earth is shaking as they are sending forth all of these bombs and explosives. And then they send up a couple of flares and it becomes like day. And you see that where there were these large vehicles made of strong steel... Now there's practically nothing. There's a declaration, but then there's the demonstration of the capability. It is not an understatement. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus here is doing something more impressive. In his baptism and his period in the wilderness, there's a declaration and a demonstration of who he is as the champion of God's people that he's going to be sent out to do what we cannot do. And in this way, the Holy Spirit is calling you, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps to be renewed in confidence in him. I want to say this because it bears repeating. The gospel is not something that you get past. It is something that you go more into. It's not a starting point that you move through, and then after that you pick up on your journey all these tools to do it yourself for the rest of your salvation. The gospel is something that you're always moving towards the center of, this recognition of my inherent weakness and inability, and more towards the sufficiency of Christ to do all in our salvation. That doesn't render the Christian irresponsible to act. We are agents that God has conferred his image upon and called to live in his way. But ultimately, the power that animates our faithfulness is Christ living in us by the same Holy Spirit who we see here poured out upon him. Our baptism is a picture of the union that we have by faith with Christ. So as we consider how Christ is the champion of Israel, ultimately of the people of God, of the church, we're going to look at this passage under two main headings. 
And then after that, we'll have some concluding reflections. I'll announce each of those headings as we come to them. But first, what we need to do is lay a foundation. Often, in my sermons at least, we'll look at several different principles for the different headings. But here, our first division has to be to lay a foundation for understanding what Jesus was doing in his baptism. Sometimes people have a mistaken understanding of baptism where they think of it mainly in an individualistic way. That it's mainly about identifying what they believe, do, are committing to, have experienced, etc. John's baptism, which is distinct from baptism in Jesus' name, but they are related, John's baptism was individual in that people went out and were baptized. But on the other hand, it was about identifying with something bigger than oneself. It was an identification with Israel and with the covenants that God had made with Israel and with the history of failing those covenants. It was an opportunity to express, to act out the part of God's people. And so the Jews had this opportunity to go out and express their identification with Israel's history. And I need to lay this before you. Don't get lost in this, or at least I'll try not to lose you in this. Baptism didn't fall out of the sky, out of nowhere. It has roots in something. And it was a way of acting out Israel's history from the Exodus forward. I want to lay this before you first. Just track with me something of the history. If you were to go back, back, back in time, when the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are in Egypt, they are in bondage. And the Lord, in Exodus 4, declares that he has adopted them to become his own nation and to become, as it were, his son. Singular. Exodus chapter 4, the Lord, through Moses, says to Pharaoh, let my son come out and worship me. So Israel as a nation is pictured as an adopted son of God, and sons have responsibilities in a household. After that, the Lord calls the nation to confess their sinfulness in the most profound and the deepest way. Not just, you know, we're sinners and we know that we're not perfect people, but worthy of death. How does he do that? It's in the Passover feast. In the Passover feast, all of the families of the Israelites slaughter a lamb as a picture of something unblemished, something pure, something they are not. And they take the blood and they put it over the doorpost of the house, which is as if to say everyone passing through here is guilty and worthy of death. But we are trusting God in some way to atone for our sin and to accept us, to pass by us with his wrath. Egypt doesn't do so, and they receive what is just. Israel receives mercy, grace. And so at the very outset of their history, they are acknowledging we are sinners who need deliverance. Next, the Lord brings them to a point of consecration. Consecration is being devoted unto the Lord in a special way. He brings them to the waters of the Red Sea. And he parts those waters and he causes them to pass through. And this is the time, really, if there's a distinct moment, where they are separated out to the Lord to his covenant. From here, they're going to be led through the sea to Sinai, where they receive the covenant from Moses, who is the mediator of that old covenant. And so those waters, simultaneously, as they go through the Red Sea, simultaneously, they represent judgment. 
Again, the judgment Israel does deserve, but are being delivered through in mercy. That judgment falls on Pharaoh and his army. But they also represent consecration to God in a covenant. Where am I getting this? I am not getting this from some theological book somewhere. There's nothing wrong with a good theological book, but every book finds its value in being rooted in the scripture. Hear what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, the apostle says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our forefathers, the Israelites, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea And in this way, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they serve as a type, a figure of the same realities being represented in baptism. Here, on the one hand, it's an acknowledgement, I deserve the judgment that fell on Pharaoh. And I'm proceeding forward in faith that God will deliver me. On the other hand, it's consecration. He didn't bring you through that water to go out the other side and be an idolater. He brought you through to live unto him. It's consecration. Confession, consecration, and then testing. God brings them out of that water, and he brings them to the foot of Sinai. And for 40 days, lock that number in your head. It's going to be significant. For 40 days, Moses is taken as the mediator of that old covenant to the top of Sinai. He's separated from all other mortal people, He's up there with the angels, it says in the text, and he's fasting and he's receiving a covenant that will stand over God's people for centuries and centuries and centuries. Meanwhile, Israel is down on the ground and they are being tested. Before 40 days are up, Moses comes back down and what does he find? The people of Israel have already turned aside to an idol. They are already unfaithful. And this does not speak well of how things are going to go throughout their covenant history. Israel is a people always turning aside. The Lord then grants that they should walk through 40 years in the wilderness. If they couldn't do it in 40 days, maybe they'll get their act together in 40 years. No, they do not. They fall and they fail. They fall and they fail. And then the Lord brings them to the Jordan, and it's as if there's a kind of do-over. They are reconsecrated through the Jordan, the very river where John is baptizing. And now it's the real thing. They're going into the land, and the whole covenant is warning them, if you're faithful, you get to stay in the land. If you're unfaithful, I will drive you out. If you do what is right and you follow me and worship me, you stay. If you don't, you leave. And they pass through the Jordan into the land. What is going to happen? Deuteronomy 31, verse 16 and following. Hear what the Lord says to Moses. So this is even before they go into the land. The Lord tells Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. In other words, Moses, you're going to die. And this is what's going to happen. He says, Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in that land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods." 
This is very, very important for you to grasp in the story of Scripture. The covenant that God made with his people, beginning at Abraham, is distinct from the covenant made at the time of Moses and at Sinai. They have a relationship both as serving, ultimately, his gracious purposes. Both are ultimately rooted in the gospel and underscoring the gospel. But there is a distinction. The covenant made with Israel upon their becoming a nation at Sinai very much conditions the blessings of the land upon their faithfulness as a nation. And the whole history is one of them breaking it, being sent out, that they cannot keep it. Let's bring this back towards John's baptism. John's baptism presented an opportunity for individual Jews, a remnant of the Jews, to act out their identification with Israel and her history, to express, I am sinful, I need a covering, and to consecrate themselves in repentance to the Lord. But it didn't answer something very important. John's baptism didn't answer how is the cycle going to be broken. There are, I'm sure of it, just by the sheer number of people who profess to be Christians, Christians who treat Christian baptism with the same mentality of John's baptism, where they are not connecting all of the imagery to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so they think, I, I, just, I have to be really faithful now, and then if I'm faithful enough, God will accept me. The nation was in that situation, but no amount of obedience from a sinner would ever result in eternal life. You're a sinner, and God's standard is righteousness. And in this way, it's like God's people are coming out to where John is, and they see a new Goliath. Remember in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is the enemy of Israel. He's the figurehead of the Philistines, and he's their champion. And he's saying to Israel, If any one of you is willing to come out and fight me, I'll fight him. And if he loses, all of you lose. And Goliath is there for many days heckling the people. Heckling and saying, you can't do this. And similarly, sinners going out to consecrate themselves to the Lord feel heckled. How will we ever enter into that righteousness forever that God desires? And it's in this context then of reaffirming in the picture of baptism that consecration to the Lord, but the failure to meet with the testing, that we then see Jesus step forward. And it's very similar to the way that David steps forward as an unknown. But here Jesus steps forward, and what he is about to do is identify himself with Israel, with the chosen of God, both in terms of the responsibilities of the covenant and the consequences of the covenant. And this brings us, now that we've laid something of a foundation for this, to our second main division, to grasp what Jesus is doing in his baptism. Because that's confusing if if you don't understand that background. Why is he being baptized? In fact, it confused John. You can read in Matthew's gospel about this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. John at first resists baptizing Jesus because he's thinking to himself, of course, Baptism is a confession of sin. It's an acknowledgement that you deserve the wrath that fell on Pharaoh and that you need cleansing. So why would Jesus be baptized? This same John will say of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
AKA, Jesus has no sin. So why would he be baptized? Because it's not for himself. He's stepping forward in order to be the champion on behalf of Israel. His willingness to be baptized is an identification, both with the responsibilities and the consequences of our history of failure. That he's willing to assume everything pictured in that for himself. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says to John, when John resists, let it be so now. He insists, let it be, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When he says fulfill all righteousness, he means do all the things that God regards as right for people to do. And it's right, not just for a person to live an upright life from the word go, though we've not done that, and Christ did, but it's right to acknowledge sin and to repent. Christ, though he had no sin of his own, enters into an act of identification with the repentance we should have rendered perfectly. His righteousness covers even our imperfect confessions of sin, and all of our confessions are imperfect. When he receives it, he's receiving it for all people, for all who are in him, the Israel of God. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus is in effect stepping forth to be the champion. And I want you to look at the steps and see how they are identifying him with Israel. The steps that we already saw. Baptism is a confession, it's also a consecration. And there's a distinction here that's beautiful, that I... God help you, sometimes you'll call to mind as we hear Exodus 20 from week to week. We read the Ten Commandments today. And I tend to include not just the commands, but the part that follows immediately after about Sinai shaking and the terror. When the people were brought to consecrate themselves and receive the Old Covenant, the heavens opened. But they opened in the most terrifying way. The earth was shaking, it was frightening. And this was to underscore to them the terrible consequences of breaking the covenant and also was a warning about what God knew was in their heart. But when the heavens open over Jesus Christ at his baptism, it is with joy and confidence. And the Lord declares, this is my son. Israel was an unfaithful son. Israel, again, we have to identify ourselves. That's not just the past. We are the Israel of God. If we've been united With Christ, we are of that Israel. We are an unfaithful son. But the Lord looks at Jesus Christ. The Father looks upon him and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the declaration. The Holy Spirit then comes down and anoints him. And immediately Jesus is led out for the testing. Those 40 days do not constitute all the testing and temptation that Jesus will experience in his earthly ministry but they are a sufficient demonstration of who and what he is about, what his abilities are. Those 40 days, think about what they represent for him. On the one hand, they are to establish that he is the second Moses, the greater than Moses. As Moses went up, isolated from all mortals, taken into the presence of God and the angels, so Jesus has that for those 40 days. It's deliberate. 40 is not accidental. It's not just because, you know, physiologically, that's the most that people can endure with their bodies. It's a type being fulfilled to associate him with Israel and with Moses. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. 
But he's also, what makes it better, he's the guarantor. So he is also playing the part of Israel. So he's led into the wilderness to be tested. His temptation doesn't come from within. As Jesus says elsewhere, he says, Satan has nothing in me. Thank God. But Adam, from the very beginning, was created upright, and yet he fell. Consider for a moment how much, circumstantially, harder Jesus' temptation is going to be. Contrast that. This is all deliberate in the text. Why does the Holy Spirit? It is the Holy Spirit who drives him out. This is providence. When Adam, representing humanity in its best position, when Adam is tested... He's in a garden surrounded by all the food you could imagine and tame animals. Remember, they are marched past him. None of them bother him. When Israel is in the wilderness, they are provided manna from heaven. They're not going to starve. And yet, even there, they're grumbling against God and saying, where is his faithfulness? He should have left us back in Egypt with their gods. Even if there had been wild animals in the wilderness, God promised that while they walked faithfully, he would drive them away. When Jesus is tested in the wilderness, look at verse 13 with me. And as you hear this, I mean, think about this is your Savior. If your trust is in Christ, this is who you're trusting. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. In order that you might have the deepest assurance that Christ who works in you is sufficient, that whatever temptation you encounter... He is with you by the Spirit to bring you through. And that above all, he was faithful to the nth degree so that your righteousness would be established once for all in him. He was exposed to the harshest extremity. How do you feel after 12 or 24 hours of not eating? And do we not then immediately begin to justify our sins out of our weakness? All of us. Christ, though he had no sin, yet he was brought to the extremity of human weakness. He knows what that is. And to fear of the danger, the horror of the animals around him. We don't know exactly what that looked like. What we do know is that God wants us to know Jesus was put to the test. And then we read in the other Gospels and here, but more detail in the other Gospels, Satan himself is actively tempting. Have you been visited by Satan himself? bringing all his cunning to bear. No. Christ, in in this sense, I do want to add pastorally, Christ's period in the wilderness is not something that we can repeat. It's not something that we should strive to be identical to him in, in a manner of speaking. It's meant to set him apart. He is distinct from us. He does what we cannot do. But then what happens In verse 14 and 15, Jesus emerges from the wilderness and begins to announce very good news concerning the kingdom. There has been the declaration, but now there's been a demonstration. Even though Jesus has years to go and still needs to suffer and die on the cross and be raised, yet he has demonstrated with authority, throw whatever at me, I am God's, I will be faithful. And he can make that announcement without any hint of pride or arrogance. It's true of him. This is, in that sense, the lights go up, the flares go up, and you see in the wilderness of all that might confront a human being, Jesus has devastated all of it. He is faithful. What do you do with this knowledge? In the first place, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you. 
Lean into the knowledge that you are united with Christ through faith. And if you have not believed in him, today is the day to do so. Standing outside of him, everything pictured in baptism will come upon you in terms of the judgment. If you do not believe in him, whether or not you've received the waters of baptism, if you do not place your faith in him alone, what's pictured there is in part a judgment. On the other hand, for those who have believed, you have the assurance that as he united himself with the covenant people, so you are united with him and all of his righteousness is yours. In fact, I want you to see one of the ways that Paul applies this. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. In just a second, I'll read this passage beginning at verse 3. But you have to hold it in tandem with Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, the opening line that we saw previously, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If there is a summary of the gospel according to Mark, it is that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1 verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Note, he didn't simply choose you to the potential of salvation, and now it's on you. He chose to grant you the blessings, all the spiritual blessings, including the work of the Holy Spirit, by which you will become holy and blameless, not only justified, but fully glorified. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In a group of this size, there can be no doubt that there are people here who this very week or this very day are feeling the ache, like a beating headache, but in their heart concerning your sin. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or if you've never been one, that it is beating in your breast and you feel, how can God be reconciled to me when I continue to sin and I continue to lapse in my temptation? In Christ's willingness to identify himself with humanity and with his covenant people in baptism, and then you're being received in baptism, the Lord can say with authority and sincerity, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The union is not fictitious, it's real. And the Lord wants you to receive that because it's only out of that sense of confidence that you will live gratefully and that you will say, I can trust him then to, to grow me and to strengthen me and he's worthy that I should live for him. Joy is the fuel. Joy that comes through faith is that wind that fills the sails and it's the joy of the gospel that actually moves us along. 
It's in this that we walk in newness of life, even as it says in Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. Baptism, issues, and consecration. Brothers and sisters, as a final exhortation to you, I want to exhort you. Carry this knowledge into your temptations. And by this, I'm not saying I trust something brand new to most all of you, but something that we grow deeper and deeper in, something that each one of us must continue to grow in. To say actively and to believe sincerely as you are confronted with temptation, the power that rested on Christ at his baptism dwells in me now. I don't have to fall into sin. There is sin, of course, and we are never perfected in this life, no one of us. But if you see a temptation, by definition, if you're aware that you are being tempted, you are called through faith in Christ to say, I am not under the power of this, and to turn away. I invite you to look at one last passage, and then we'll close in prayer. 1 Corinthians 10. I mentioned this previously. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and following. I'll simply mention, I, testifying as an individual, it's the felt reality of mature Christians that you lapse into a thinking where you feel like this is just a temptation that I will always fail in. And we must, must resist that because it's simply not the testimony of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We saw that that was a representation then of baptism and consecration. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. By the way, it is worth noting that Corinth, to whom he's writing this letter, already was demonstrating particular issues with sexual morality. It's not because this is the only sin, but it was the sin they were in the midst of. And the city of Corinth was known as kind of a pleasure capital of the Mediterranean. It says, we must not, verse 9, put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Often that verse 13 is read by itself, but it's not connected with its context 
with the nature of what is pictured in baptism. And that cry, the basis upon which we are to draw that God is faithful, is that Christ, who is victorious, who is our champion, is united with you. I can't give you an epiphany, but I can pray for you, and we can pray for one another, that the Lord would more and more root us in that confidence. Christ dwells in you. Wage your war against sin, all sin, knowing he is capable, he doesn't fall. Lean on him. Let's ask the Lord to help us even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having appointed for us a Savior. We thank you that his perfect faithfulness, that he never failed his test, is counted to us because we are united with him by faith. Nevertheless, you call us as true sons and daughters adopted into your household to live righteously before you. We pray that you would help us, your redeemed people, to do so, not looking to our own strength, but looking to the power of the Spirit who is with us in this wilderness. Please, in your time, bring us through all of these trials, preserving our faith in order that we might receive that commendation which comes by grace from you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Renew us for all things, for Jesus is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen.